Ok, parfait. For me, the best ideas come if I'm really excited about a topic. And usually, if you go into the new field, you're really excited. This is like a candy shop in a way, you can pick the best stuff. <laughs> and that goes even into unconsciousness. If I'm excited over the day on a topic, so even I end the day with this topic, but then earlier in the morning, if I wake up, I notice that my brain continued that excitement overnight. And something comes in to my brain overnight. So I also make use of the night. It's not only the day in a way. And then bounce it back with other people. This is one of the reasons why we call it night science. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I assume so. Welcome to the Night Science Podcast. Where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Italian I. And I am Martin Lurcher. Today we are extremely happy to have Per Borg with us. Per Borg is the Director of Scientific Activities at EMBL, the European Molecular Biology Lab in Heidelberg, Germany, where Per has been a group leader since 1995. Per's background is in biochemistry and in theoretical biophysics, but what he's known for is his contributions to bioinformatics, which are uncountable. Per has won too many prizes to mention, but uh, there's one that impressed me quite a bit by its phrasing, and that was the 2021 International Society for Computational Biology Accomplishments by a Senior Scientist Award, which was given to Per for tremendous contributions to bioinformatics on a plethora of fronts within the field. I was a guest scientist in Per's lab for two years, And I'm still very impressed by the bustling and creative atmosphere of his large group. Yeah, absolutely. Per has made major contributions to the field of computational biology. And already 20 years ago, Per's work was commonly discussed in the lab where I did my PhD. So when I met Per at a conference and he invited me for a short stay in his lab to do a project, I really jumped at the chance. That was in 2003. And it was actually there that I met you, Martin, in Pear's lab. Yeah. And one thing I always remember is how, Pear, your routine would be to walk around the lab and just ask people if they want to go for a coffee. So Martin and I would come with you for a coffee and also uh, Jan Korbel. And we would go to the canteen and just talk science. And then you would come back and just go to the next person, <laughs> have a coffee with them. So I don't know how you sustained that much caffeine. But since then, Per, you continued to make tremendous contributions to computational biology and systems biology, a lot of functional protein prediction, comparative analysis, data integration, you name it, Per has been a leader in it. So Martin and I are, are thrilled that you're joining us today. Yeah, thanks for all the praise. Not sure I deserve <laughs> all of it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you do, actually. I mean, which is the reason why both Itai and I came to your lab in the hope of learning something. And I think we did learn a thing or two there. I think the way you run your lab is slightly different from the setup of many other labs in the sense that you're working on a lot of different projects in parallel. Is there a typical way how projects unfold? Quite a bit of a group is involved in large collaborations. And there you have more defined tasks. It's more data-driven stuff. And then we have our own potpourri of projects The idea is to be very broad and not so deep, but then if you find a nugget, you zoom in and you add biology to the detail. So we often work in emergent fields where you have an uncharted territory, and then you have to get a feeling what's important, what's not important. 
And one way to make such a decision is really thinking of, could I tell the story of a non-scientist? Would she understand what we are up to? So that's a bit of um, pre-selection of things if you want to go for important discoveries that the public understands. And usually the important ones the public does understand. And this is a way how uh, things also unfold. You have a set of data and, you know, roughly the biology around it. And what are the questions that nobody has thought about? That's ambition. That's really interesting. You said you could have these broad searches and then hope that you would find a nugget. Do you have a trick for knowing when it is that you find a nugget? Because, you know, one person's nugget of gold could be another person's garbage. I have a biological background where I can see there could be interesting biology. Either it is against the dogma, uh, which is not really proven, but the Mm. field believes it, or it's something very simple. My papers, when we write, they're often not very long. They usually center around one topic, except, again, these consortium things. But still, if you have a lot of different ideas, which I'm sure you have, you have to have some way of deciding which ones you think you want to work on which ones you think maybe it's not so fruitful to spend so much time on them. It's also the people, because you can have the greatest idea if the person who's supposed to exercise it is not really convinced or willing, that doesn't work either. So it's another factor out of many that sort of goes in in a selection. Can I convince people that's a good idea? So I mildly see the ideas, and in the next meeting they think it was their own one. And then, of course, I always think, what is the outcome? So assuming you would achieve it, you know, what is it? In group leader hiring, I always ask, give you an idea that it's worth a high-impact paper, but then select those that would make it on a local newspaper, page two. So it's, again, back to, is this something that the public would be interested in because they have a good sense of what progress is? One thing I remember about your lab is that it really embraced interdisciplinarity, that you guys are always interested in many things, and particularly if a new field opens up, even though you may not have been all formally trained in that field, like say microbiology and the microbiome, you still feel pretty confident in going in anyway. So how do you nurture that culture in your lab? Yes, it's very true. We have moved direction a few times, but there were also a few constants. And I always say bioinformatics is much easier than other disciplines. It all comes to you in zeros and ones. So there is some commonality, at least at that level, and quite often also at the level of analysis. The statistics can be similar, the approaches. These days, we often use machine learning in all kinds of disciplines. And then there's also the fun part. I'm not trained in it, but as scientists, we are usually curious. You learn new things constantly. It's a pleasure to get into this and learn more about it, but also as advantage that you have no dogmas. If you're in a field, then you know exactly how the field operates. But if you come from the outside, usually people are not happy with you coming with naive questions in a field and doing things very differently. Often you're told off, that's not the way we operate, but sometimes it's valuable because you come to a kind of new avenue. Um, so has lots of advantages, but also, of course, have disadvantages. And when you go into this new field and, and people are skeptical, do you have tricks for how to handle that? For example, maybe partner with a person that does have credibility, that is an expert in the field. Well, not really, but it changes over time. So because if you hop a few times and still survive in a way, then people take you more serious. 
I remember in the early days when we went to the domain business and submitted a tool called Smart, end of the 90s, one of the reviewers, established people, was a good journalist, really said, this is just a laundry list of these kind of domains. Who on earth would be interested in such a boring work, you know? <laughs> it's one of the most cited tools by now, but you have to probably be also, how to say, I don't want to say autistic enough, but don't get too much detoured by those discouraging statements probably have to have some level of confidence. And do you feel that maybe your best ideas come when you venture into a subfield that you're not so familiar with? I think so. For me, the best ideas come if I'm really excited about a topic. And usually if you go into the new field, you're really excited. This is like a candy shop in a way, can pick the best stuff. <laughs> And that goes even into unconsciousness. If I'm excited over the day on a topic, so even I end the day with this topic... But then earlier in the morning, if I wake up, I notice that my brain continued that excitement overnight. But then I have solutions and something comes in. So my brain overnight apparently works quite heavily on those if I'm really excited. So I also make use of the night. It's not only the day in a way. And then bounce it back with other people. This is one of the reasons why we call it night science. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I assume so. And pair beyond sort of dreaming about it, do you also think that you get a lot of ideas through the discussions? I mean, for me, that's, like I said in the introduction, what sticks out so much from work in your lab, that there were these discussions over coffee and it was the interactions, the kind of teamwork that led to a lot of the ideas. A big part of the process is, of course, a discussion with the people in various forms. I mean, it comes in these small coffee discussions, in group meetings, uh, a bit larger circle, etc., with colleagues, not in the group, but outside who have uh, different skill sets, different expertise, etc. So bouncing ideas, I think, is a very important part of it in different contexts. So it's a very interactive process to evolve these ideas and also select some of them. So when you're bouncing ideas around in interaction with people, Is that just talking or do visualizations also play an important role for you? I'm a very visual type. So if I see things, even if it's just a block of paper with some weird diagram, so that is part of it. For me, visual support is essential. And therefore, for me, also figures on a paper are extremely important. And again, usually I try it in a similar way. A lay person, would they understand what's going on? Particularly because we work so much complex data, do distill it to something more simple. And that is even part of the brain work during discussion. How can I show to others what I mean? The drawing is very important. I have a general question, Pierre. Listening to you speak, one thing that's striking is how excited you are about science. And that's tremendous. How do you do it? How do you stay so excited about science? and not let it fade away? I guess there's a bit of genetics. So I'm a curious person <laughs> because I see so much forward-looking stuff, so much creative stuff you can do with science. And I really like it, how much you push the world forward, you know, whether it's always in the right direction and useful the, at the end, others have to tell. And also I have still a very wonderful group of people around me. If you're surrounded by young people, usually your brain stays a little young. So hopefully This excitement will not go away too quickly. Maybe one factor that might have contributed to keeping it exciting for you could be, like you said at the beginning, that basically everything can be expressed as ones and zeros. And so you are at a kind of hub of different scientific directions and you can venture in all sorts of direction using very similar methods. 
Yes, as you say, based on two digits, you can create so much complexity. And yes. each with its own beauty, you can apply it to different fields. And then also, if you watch technology, you get a good feel when is something right to integrate. You know, I mean, the direction A with the technology B, like in metagenomics, it was as usually a bit fortune because I met the right person at the right conference. It was the vision of what you can do with the genomic data and how it could evolve. And again, it's very exciting. There's a few different pieces. You come to very different new avenues. And again, if you're early into it, you have a field for your own in a way. You know, if it evolves into yeah. a field, that's always a little of a risk. Well, yeah, but quite a few of the things that you started to work on evolved into fields, I think. So you just mentioned that for the metagenomics stuff, you happened to meet the right person at a conference. And earlier on, you said that a lot of what your group does, and I know this from experience, is big collaborations. I mean, not, not everything, but a large part. So is that usually how these collaborations evolve, that you meet somebody at a conference? Yeah, this is, in my view, how science discovery goes. I mean, the early ones are probably small collaborations. If it's early in a field, something really innovative, new. If you have a larger consortium, it's more the scaling up part. Like the Human Genome Project is probably the projects of the century, yeah. but that technology existed already. It was just bringing things together. People might say, I'm, I'm wrong here, but I think the innovative parts came earlier. Like this is as with many things. Now in metagenomics, it's big consortia, but I think just exercising existing ideas and putting them together. That's not, in my opinion, so much novelty. At that conference, I think, was Eddie Rubin, that time JGI, and they sequenced a bit of dirt, Sanger sequencing, 2003. Okay and see what you can do. You know, having not one organism, which was very trendy, we were part of quite a few animal sequencing projects actually at that time, and therefore I was at the conference. Greg Venter, I think, at the same conference also presented Sargasso C for the first time, and he was quite a bit more ahead in this. So that was a connection, plus somebody who had data, and he didn't really know what to do with that. He was not a hardcore bioinformatician, and so that was a link made, so we could contribute And that month, we could dream about, you know, what to do, all these snippets. It was completely new and exciting. That goes back, it was a small-scale collaboration, which seeded and all kinds of follow-up larger ones. You know, this makes me want to ask you about your opinion on what the size of the team should be. Because there was this paper in Nature published a couple of years ago from uh, James Evans, where the title is Large Teams Develop and Small Teams Disrupt. The notion there was that, of course, there's a huge contribution by a large team, but if you want to say something that's very disruptive, revolutionary, you tend to only be able to do it in a team that's of a small size, like maybe uh, two or three people, or maybe just one. How do you find that it works when you want to make a bold claim, but you're in a consortia and it's difficult to make everybody agree? I see as quite a bit of truth it and implicitly it picks on what I just said before. Yeah, there's huge consortia and it's not really the innovation, it's the implementation, you know, and it's very important because at the end science has to translate at some right. point. I think it's not exclusive either. So I remember one of these EU grants, so it's a medium size, I guess, consortium, but not a small one for sure. Because it was a new field, we've had different messages in very different areas. And I think those simple messages were quite big. For example, you pushed the ideas of enterotypes, so these gut community types, and it was a simple message in a big group back that obviously it was developed mostly by us, but with only with the help of the others, the data, 
and the teamwork. So I think it's possible to put a message, but by and large, I would back that statement that basically very distinctive, clear messages are usually not so easy in those because they have usually so much data, so many sub-results, the cool ones often hide in a jungle of many other ones. So that's when we think about team size in terms of different groups and consortia. But what's your experience with team size and creative discussions within your group or with your close collaborators? Do you feel that there's a difference between talking to just one other person or two or three or five people or the whole group simultaneously? It's a good point. This also relates to how PI is operating. Some PIs are much more productive and effective in smaller groups. Others need bigger ones. For our own research direction, I think we need a reasonably sized group. So reasonably size is probably 20. I remember in the early 90s when I started the group, I said three to five people. That's probably the optimal size. But over time, you realize going in different disciplines and working with lots of data, you need quite a group infrastructure. So quite a fraction of the group is technically oriented, not only method development, just infrastructure, data hubs, that kind of stuff. I think three, four people teams are still the right things. But what I learned over time, you can have a couple of those. If you have 10 running projects in a group and there's a kind of a overlapping set of three, four people each, you can have these lovely, innovative, exciting discussions. Nevertheless, I think I prefer more than two. We always have a third opinion. But three to five, it's for me a good size if you go for brainstorming on a certain area for innovative ideas. Per, listening to you, it's very obvious that a lot of organization is required in how you get the analyses done and the consortia moving on schedule. There seems to be a creative process and a very distinct organizational need. And Martin and I, we call that night science and day science, respectively. Do you see it that way too? It's very different. Actually, it's almost an art to keep creativity. If you grow as a PI, getting more and more administrative duties to keep that freedom for innovation. And it's actually really hard work to keep that part. You have to devote the time to this and, and switch modus in a way. I'm more creative in the morning. So all these scientific discussions we talked about, I do try to do in the morning And then more organizational work comes in the afternoon where I can so slow down the brain a little. I'd like to switch topic a little bit. And that is so far when we talked, it sounded like everything you touch turns into gold, right? You have these amazing papers about tools and databases and scientific discoveries that are very visible. But what is the role of failures in your experience in driving the course of a project and maybe in making interesting discoveries. Yeah, maybe my brain works with suppression also. In terms of big failures that we sort of invested three years and then had to stop, it rarely happens. It's maybe the nature of the disciplines that you have the data and have a good selection process. So it's easier than in other fields. One thing I forgot to say, ingredient is also persistency. So before I let things go, I really <laughs> zoom in <laughs> and explore things, you know, and then if it's really nothing, you know, what can we do out of it? Because there's a duty in a way that you report as a scientist what you did. So even if at the end, it's only a method because you didn't get the big discovery. So sometimes it sort of ends in tools. I think I only know three or four manuscripts in my scientific life from a group that never sort of made it. Of course, there are areas where say, you know, good try didn't work. 
But usually we figure that rather early because the design is we do pilots with small data set. And if it doesn't bring anything, then you can switch early on. When I said failure, maybe that wasn't the right word. What I meant was more <laughs> like you then described. You start a project with a certain idea. So you think you're going to understand a certain phenomenon or discover certain types of patterns. And then that doesn't materialize. But yeah. that doesn't mean that you have to abandon the project, right? And like you said, you do these pilots and then you look more closely and you try to figure out what is in there, if not what I expected originally. Exactly, yeah. So if there's a hypothesis out in a field and you have a data sort, you want to see it. And if it doesn't show up, then you start wondering. And again, I believe my data more than the dogma. So it sounds, Per, that uh, in your lab, failure is not an option. <laughs> but I'm wondering, you know, if your lab proposes to upend a dogma, then presumably you are experiencing a lot of resistance at the time of publishing. How do you nurture the students and the postdocs in your lab so that they don't get discouraged? For example, if I start with a PhD student, I always ask first, are you a risk taker? I select people who believe they can cope with also what you call failures or things that do not work. So that's part one. And then part two is, and indeed, it, it happened quite often, and usually at the reviewer stage. So I remember in a soil project, you know, we had a big soil analysis, first of its kind. And they say, you know, everything which is data-driven and not hypothesis-driven is no science. And that you hear from a reviewer from nature. So sometimes it turns even around. If several put their gut out and hate what you do, then you might convince the editor has something in it because they were so outing themselves and being <laughs> negative. So not everything is black and white. There are lots of rescue options in a way as well. Then you have backup plans. The person has an easier job in a collaboration, for example. You were telling us that you pre-select people in your group based on their resilience. Do you also select people based on how creative they seem to be? Or is that something that you teach them in some way? So another aspect is the drive. So it's not only excitement, but the drive to get things done. That's another feature one can select for. But again, if you have a potpourri of people, you need the drivers, you need the creative people, you need the very technical-oriented people. So what I try to balance, and I try to see in people Where could they go and discuss with them up front what you want to do in science, what's your goal, and try to adapt here as well. So creativity, it's easier to see at the postdoc level if people have shown what they can do. For PhD students, usually they don't have a scientific track record where I can say, that's a cool idea, that's off the track. So yeah, it's a whole list of factors that needs to be considered. Creativity is one of them. Per, I think you've given just now great advice for new PI starting their lab that they should balance the members in terms of more adventurous, more like methods development. And I'm wondering if you can offer this imaginary new PI another piece of advice regarding whether they should go into something that's very competitive or should they maybe start off their lab with something more of a sure win if less hot. How do you do it? Well, it's how I should answer each question. It depends. <laughs> <laughs> one thing to the previous stuff. So one aspect as we move now in a different area, one of the selection aspect I forgot to mention is social skills as well. So we need interacting people. And you can have a brilliant guy. I had a few of those. If they only work at night and don't talk to anybody, 
at least in our setting, it's no good. So that's another criteria. But again, everybody builds a group with a different theme. So that's for me also a very important selection criteria. But going back, hot topic or not, again, it depends on the psychology of PI, confidence level, risk taker, also at the PI level, whether because hot topics are high risk, high gain, so to speak. And it also depends how equipped the PI is with people. If you're in a very good setting, you can attract very good people, then it's probably rather easier to compete. So it depends indeed on various settings and also how specialized you are and how broad you are and whether you can bring in something new to the field, even if it's a hot topic. You might come from an angle that is sort of understudied, so they have a good starting advantage. So again, it depends. Per, so far we've discussed all your successes and what you established as a group leader. But before becoming a group leader, you must have had some years that formed you as a scientist. And of course, we are particularly interested in your scientific creativity. Is there anything in your training or in your early career that you think has influenced your way of being creative? Certainly. I mean, one thing is, again, everybody's different, but the choice of supervisors and how they treat you in a way. So I was lucky. I had supervisors, and that was from a master's onwards, who gave me all kinds of freedom. I have to say, you mentioned biochemists, it's true. But I come from East Germany, have a weird background. I was in a school of mathematics and I trained myself on computers. And here we talk about end of the 80s. You know, the East German normal computer had the size of a car and couldn't divide two numbers. <laughs> But I trained myself and had an edge there. So maybe it contributed a bit that they had some trust in me. And that formed me. So basically having the trust of a supervisor that I could explore early on already my own ideas, my own failures in a way that I really appreciated and I tried to give this on. So not micromanagement, giving people freedom to develop creativity. Usually if things go, I don't interfere. Of course, there's always a kind of monitoring. If I see things do not right, I go in. And that I learned early on already, I think is part of creativity. If you sort of trust yourself and coming up with silly ideas, knowing that some of them are really stupid, but you know, this early on in a career already. So that was one part And the second part, I'm not sure I should say that. I mean, early on, I was always physically in a place where my new supervisor was not there. I studied in Leipzig, did my master's in Berlin. For the first years, I was in Heidelberg, although employed in Berlin. So it was for quite some time, I was not traceable in a way. And again, that gave me freedom and that helped as well. But it's probably a very specific situation. And then again, the supervisors, I mean, selecting wise supervisors, I think it's very crucial. And I was very, I mentioned fortunate, and the one that came first to my mind was my PhD supervisor, Jens Reich. He was a guy, well, he was even member of parliament at some point. He was the leader of the East German undergrowth movement. So he did lots of other things, but yet was a brilliant scientist. He was a medical doctor. Also, he wrote essays for German newspapers. He wrote books. But he also was a great scientist. So really looking out of the box. So even if you do your little science, you know, look big, have touch with society and go for big things. I mean, like climate change, we try now, it's very ambitious, but I'm not trained in that at all. But nevertheless, there are some aspects. If you take your little bioinformatics tools together, we might contribute. So thinking big, that I was encouraged early on. And this, I think, is also important. Well, Per, this was uh, a really interesting discussion. And I just have one last question. How many cups of coffee do you drink a day? <laughs> <laughs> 
depends on a day and what the daily setup is. <laughs> so, <laughs> like all of your answers, it always depends. <laughs> it just depends. <laughs> Again, it depends on a day. So usually in a normal working day, it's only about two. This is now. But in the early days, so the times probably you witnessed, it was quite a few more. And it also correlates with excitement level and look forward. If I see my own excitement coming. I sort of amplify it with a bit of drugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I hope you continue to drink lots of coffee here and yeah. turn those into amazing new ideas. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, thanks Thank you so much. Thank you for the talented questions. <laughs> yeah, I hope it was useful. Okay. Okay.